My name is Nick. I'm one of the pastors here. It is my privilege to land our Philippians series. Um, it has been uh, short but sweet. And I want to pray before we dive right in. Fathers, we posture our hearts this morning. Um, we just recognize that what we're about to uh, enter into is not primarily an intellectual academic exercise. Um, there are ideas, uh, there are thoughts, but what is happening here is warfare between our flesh, principalities and powers, and the power of your word to shift and change lives. So we posture ourselves um, in a way in which we can receive what your Holy Spirit is saying to the church. We ask, my God, that you would not make us defensive, but receptive. We ask, my Father, that you would help me to be true to your word. And more than that, we ask that the name of Jesus would be glorified as we look at how you have revealed your plan, your love, and your ultimate glory in your word. Amen. As I said, this is the, uh, the last of our Philippians series, and uh, we called our Philippians series Remember to Forget. We did that uh, because we tend to be a forgetful people. Most of the writings in the New Testament are not brand new theologies that Paul is explaining to people. Um, the apostles and the early writers of the church, the bulk of their writings is um, centered around the idea that these were teachings that were given when these churches were planted, and these are things that you need to remember. These are reminders that are important. We remember the wrong things, and we forget the wrong things. And so in our Philippian series, Remember to Forget, we're, we're focusing on what Paul is telling the Philippian church to remember and what to forget. One of the kind of high points of the scripture is where Paul says, uh, forgetting what is behind me, I press on and lean into that which is yet to come. And um, one of the things that Paul is forgetting is he's forgetting his sin. Uh, remember that Paul was actively involved in the murdering of Christians. He would go and he would gather Christians around and he would take them to the authorities and they would be put on trial and many of them would be murdered. He's also forgetting his accolades. Uh, as, as we saw in the Philippians, he, he listed out his resume about why he should have faith in what he has been able to achieve in and of himself and his flesh. But he said, I'm forgetting the things that I should be ashamed of. I'm forgetting the things that I could have been proud of. And what I'm doing is I'm pressing on to lay hold of that for which Christ laid hold of me. We looked at this book and it, it drips with joy and affection. Even the way the book starts is it starts centered around team to the elders, the deacons, and the saints in Philippi. From Paul and Timothy and Titus, the church was planted in the context of a team. Epaphroditus goes to help Paul, sent by the Philippian church. There isn't one rock star in the story. It's all about team. It's an amazing antidote to anxiety. Paul helps us to see Jesus in a countercultural way as the humble king that will come to destroy the shaky kingdom of Satan. He helps us to see that even though we live in exile, we live in a community of grace, in a kingdom colony that shows people what it looks like when heaven touches earth. He shows us that there is a peace 
that passes understanding and that peace doesn't just guard our minds and our hearts, but this week we'll see that that peace guards our wallets too. Philippians 4 verse 9 to 23, I'm reading out of the New King James Version. The things that you have learnt and received and heard and saw in me, these do, and the God of peace will be with you. But I rejoiced greatly in the Lord, and now at last your care for me has flourished again, though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regards to need, for I have learnt in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learnt to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but only you. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full, having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Imitation is one of the key themes that we also see throughout Philippians. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And we see in verse 9, Paul clearly establishes what that pattern looks like. The things that you have learned and received and heard and saw, these things do. There is a sense in which we are to practice these things. About six or seven years ago, actually probably longer than that because I, I only had Kiona and Fallon, um, I was driving around in, in the car and I braked really hard because someone had cut me off. And out of the back seat where Kiona was in her little booster, I heard her say, idiot. <laughs> I had never taught her to say idiot. I had never said to her, when someone cuts you off, you say idiot. I had never explained to her that I was in the right. She had heard and experienced and she had sworn and she had seen me practice that generally when the car shifts forward, the word that comes out of my mouth is idiot. And so when the car breaks, that is your response. Your response is to say idiot. Now, the thing that I learned out of that is I have taught her not to say those things. I've sat down and we, we went through um, not a list of words, but we went through some words that are appropriate and some words that are not. But the most important thing is that she heard and she saw and she practiced. And we need to understand in the context of as we've gone through Philippians and as we are kingdom bearers, uh, there is a learning, there is a receiving, but the thing that people catch from us is the hearing, seeing, and doing. 
and the way in which we engage in the world. We don't need to, I don't need to explain to Kiona that I was completely in the right here and that this person that cut me off was in the wrong and therefore I have the right to express my frustration in the use of a word that I have told her in the past she should not use. No, what she saw was my behavior and she began to model that behavior. And so Paul is saying as he ends that beautiful passage that we spoke about last week, all about the peace of God guarding our hearts and minds. And he encourages the Philippian church, the things that you have learned in the way in which people have actively taught you, the things that you have received, not only through the Holy Spirit, the things that you have heard. And this is important. This is all of these things cannot be done outside the context of community. The way in which we learn how to pray is when we pray with other people. We hear other people pray. The things that you saw in me, I follow Jesus, you follow me. That's an imitation. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. It is impossible to have effective discipleship of learning, receiving, hearing, seeing, and doing outside of the context of a Christian faith community. Because all of these things that Paul lists are things that can only happen when we commit ourselves one to another. The question I have as you read through this portion of Scripture is, is he even grateful? We know the purpose of the letter was to thank the Philippians, not only for the financial gift that they gave him, but also for the fact that they sent Epaphroditus to him. But when you read this, I have the question, like, he doesn't sound very grateful. If someone has given you a lot of money and someone has given you someone else to come and take care of your needs, I would think that you would be more thankful than saying, now I'm not implying that I was in any personal want, for I have learned how to be satisfied to the point that I'm not disturbed or disquieted. Now imagine someone gave you a gift and that was your response. Imagine they gave you a gift and, and, and you said to them, now not that I lacked in any way because I've learned to be sufficient in all of these things. You'd be like, are you even grateful for what I've received? For what you've received. In verse 17, he says, Now, not that I seek the gift. So, what is he doing here? Have, have any of you guys ever been involved in a pitch in gift? You know the pitch in gift? Hey, we're going to get Neil the super expensive thing, and we just would like you to pitch in. And you're like, That is expensive. Like, how much am I supposed to pitch in? Like, am I supposed to pitch in 10 bucks? Am I supposed to pitch in 20? Like, how is he going to know how much everyone pitched in? So if I pitched in 100 and Chris pitched in 10, then how will he know that? Are we going to have a spreadsheet that says how much everyone pitched in? Like, how does, how does that work, right? Those are awkward gifts. Okay, these days with Venmo, it's a little easier, right? Because now you can charge for the gift. We're going to get Neil this gift, and then you just send a charge to Chris, 50 bucks, 50 bucks, 50 bucks, and we're good, right? But what about when you receive the pitch-in gift? You receive this gift, and this gift is from all of these people, and you're like, I know not everyone contributed equally to this gift. I mean, I know that. Human nature tells me not everyone contributed equally to this gift. How do you thank these people? And I don't think that Paul was sitting there thinking, I wonder how much so-and-so... I wonder how much so-and-so contributed. No, what he's doing is he is thanking them for something that is over and above the gift that he's receiving. He is thankful, but he's thankful for the right thing. He's thankful that they had an opportunity to partner with him. He's thankful because of what this gift means for the Philippian church's maturity and Christ-likeness. 
Whether someone gave $1 or whether someone gave $100, the reality is this. The people in Philippi are saying, yes, Paul, we want to join you on the mission that God has given you for the extension of the kingdom of God, the declaration of the good news of Jesus Christ, and to see churches planted throughout the known world. We want to join you in that. That is what, is thank- that is what he's thankful for. He is grateful not just because he was supplied, but because he is content. He is grateful because the Philippians will receive from Jesus a greater gift because of what they have sown into, the, um, into Paul's ministry. You know, when my kids buy me a present, that's how I feel. I don't feel like, wow, this is the greatest thing that I could have received. I'm not super grateful for the actual thing itself, but I'm grateful for the fact that they had to go and deny themselves and think about me, which two, two kind of unselfish acts, what would dad like? And the purchase of this is going to mean that I'm going to have to go without. And when I receive that gift, I receive that gift with a sense of joy, not because I got socks, not because I got a tie, not because I got something that I may or may never use, but because it shows their maturity and their Christ-likeness in that moment. I'm just thinking about it because all the girls say it's really hard to buy presents for me. And my wife nods. Anyway, it is the thought that counts. There we go. What Paul is saying to the Philippians here is that you weren't just silent partners. You weren't just willing to just give your money and not be engaged with me in any way. Now, part of the challenge that we live in is that we tend to give in what we have the overflow of and not what requires sacrifice for us. So if you have a lot of money, then you could understand someone saying, here's 50 bucks for an Uber. It costs you nothing. If you don't have money, you'd be, and someone asks you for money, you'd be like, um, well, I don't really have a lot of money, but I can help you move or I can help you do whatever. What Paul is helping us understand here is that true partnership is multifaceted. It's not just time. It's not just money. It includes love. It includes suffering. In verse 14, it says, Nevertheless, you have done well in that you shared my distress. This is not a sense of the Philippians saying, Okay, what do we have a lot of? Let's give Paul out of the overflow of that. The Philippians, when they heard that Epaphroditus was sick, they were worried. This is not just about sending money. They sent a beloved leader to Paul to take care of him while he was in prison. It would be the same thing as if, as if I was in prison and you guys sent Karin to me to take care of my needs. And then you heard that Karin almost died. Most of you would be more concerned about Karin almost dying, which is completely understandable, right? And the Philippians, when the Philippians heard that Epaphroditus almost died, they were distressed. We, we read that in Philippians. They were distressed. They didn't just send the overflow of what they had. They partnered with Paul in every way. It is what is needed at the time where true partnership comes through. It's not what is most convenient to give at that time. Because sometimes it is more convenient to give money. Sometimes it's more convenient to give time. But in this moment, they gave all of those things because they understood this is what partnership looks like. So Paul talks a lot about contentment. And so we're going to be looking at whether contentment is even possible. Next week is Thanksgiving. I love Thanksgiving. But I have kind of this love-hate relationship with that weekend because 
you have Thanksgiving, and then you have Black Friday. And now you have Grey Thursday, you know, which is, well, which is when stores open on Thursday. So instead of people at least getting an entire break on Thursday, now stores open on Thursday evening. But I was reading through some shocking statistics from a website called, and believe it or not, there is a website called Black Friday Death Count. Okay? Dot com. Since 2000, <laughs> since 2006, what did you learn at church today? Since 2006, <laughs> there have been 12 deaths and 117 hospitalized people because of Black Friday. Just let that sink in. Twelve people dead because you want to get a Wii for $30 less. You want to fight people. A, a Nintendo Wii. Yeah. Switch. Xbox. PlayStation. Whatever. There's a story about a woman who arrived at a store with two pepper sprays in her back pocket and as they, opened, as they opened the gates, turned around, pepper sprayed everyone, ran and got her toys, paid for them and left, came back, I think there was a discussion with her husband at home, came back two hours later and gave herself up. Okay? 30 people, 30 people had to be treated because of her pepper spray um, debacle. Okay? None of this... None of this. Now, look, if you've been involved in a Black Friday and you've camped out and you've done something, I don't want you to feel bad. If you've hurt someone, I do, okay? But, <laughs> you know. But, but the question that I'm asking is a content individual doesn't do that. A content individual does not rugby tackle a granny because she's going to get the last PlayStation. A content individual does not do that. So, so we look at this whole idea of contentment and what on earth does it mean to be content. And Paul tells us that there's a number of ways in which the world tries to help us to reach contentment. The one is internally, the one is externally. And then we read that Paul tells us that contentment is actually a learnt skill. In verse 11 he says, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned that whatever state I am in, to be content. Now, it would be a massive misunderstanding if we read from this and Paul is saying, I don't need your help. Now, we know a lot of people like that. There's a lot of people that, that actually are um, communicating, whether verbally or non-verbally to us, that I don't need your help. And Paul is very clever here. And Paul uses this word content. And this, is, this word is only ever used once in the New Testament because it's actually more of a philosophical and um, secular term. The word content um, translated here means self-sufficient. It means independent, autonomous. What he's doing is he's using a pun to show these guys how ridiculous it is. The specific word is only ever used once, and it represented the ultimate goal of Stoicism, which meant that you can gain contentment Internally. Now, Stoicism is one of those things that, that says you deny your flesh in order to reach higher levels of spirituality. So one of their philosophers says this, begin with a cup or a household utensil, and if it breaks, say, I don't care. Go on to a horse, which would be a car, 
or a pet dog. I mean, in those days, that's what it was, right? Go onto a horse or a pet dog. If anything happens to it, say, I don't care. Say, I don't care, Gabby. I don't care if something happens to Milo. Whatever. I don't care. Okay. Go on to yourself. And if you are hurt or injured in any way, say, I don't care. If, now listen to this, if you go on long enough, and if you try hard enough, you can come to a stage where you watch your nearest and dearest suffer and die and say, I don't care. What is the point of, of what they're saying? Now, of course, to us this seems ridiculous, but the point of what they're saying is, Bad things are going to happen, so you need to grab your internal fortitude and be able to say that when those things happen, I separate myself from them. I don't care. I'm not emotionally engaged. There's no connection. That way, you will get to higher degrees of contentment and spirituality. Stoics want to eliminate emotion and connection. And so the only way they can receive contentment is to not care about what happens to their possessions or their relationships or themselves. Now, Paul does this in a letter that is full of emotion, full of joy, sorrow, anxiety. And there's a reason that he talks about this up and down of emotion, because he is not advocating emotional amputation. That's not what Paul is saying. He's not saying this is the way that you can be content, is to not care about what happens to you. Paul is in prison, and he's not saying, I don't care. But Paul is saying, I am content. And how can he say that? Because he's reminding us of the ruler of our emotions is not our circumstances and it's not us. It is Christ. In him, I rejoice. I suffer in him. I join his afflictions. And he's able to shift the seat of his emotions from himself and his circumstances to his king and glory. We don't fight this stoic battle these days. We fight the opposite. The opposite of stoicism is hedonism. So stoicism is a fancy way to say that you reject any kind of worldly pleasure. Hedonism is a fancy way to say that the only thing that brings meaning to your life is to pursue pleasure in every way. And so if contentment internally is what the Stoics say, just reject any connection and emotionally amputate yourself from anything, hedonists are saying, this is how you be happy. You suck the marrow out of life. Dead Poets Society, those of you that are young enough or old enough to remember that, they haven't done a remake yet, so it's not that old. Our goals have shifted. In the, in the society in which we live, there is a sense in which there's been this slight shift. And so people recognize that those that die with all the toys still die. So there's this recognition that, okay, we're not going to pursue materialism, but what we're going to do is we're going to pursue experience. And so we're going to make sure that we travel as much as we can. We're going to make sure that we have the experiences that we can. We're going to make sure that we kind of organize our life so that we can have our pleasures maintained. Because money isn't everything. We're going to actually take some serious steps to minimize our carbon footprint. We're going to focus on the quality of life versus quantity. Are those bad things? No, they're not, they're not bad things. But it's still like chasing smoke. The writer of Ecclesiastes tells us that, that Solomon chased after wealth. 
That didn't do it. Solomon chased after building these big buildings. That didn't do it. He chased after sex. He had concubines and wives and nothing. The writer of Ecclesiastes tells us this. It was like chasing smoke. It was like just when you think you've got it, it's out of your grasp. Instagram makes this a hundred times worse, right? Because on Instagram, everyone is having a better time than you. And on Instagram, everyone is, is achieving their goals, and everyone has what they want, and everyone is experiencing those things. And so you have this to the power of when we engage in things like that. So if we can't gain it internally, in other words, through fortitude, and we can't gain it externally by just, by just seeking out pleasure in every way that we can, even though we've adjusted our idea of pleasure, it's not the big house, but it's being able to go on vacation anytime I want to go, and none of those things are bad. It's just the focus of what gives me contentment. Then we realize that we have to learn a posture of contentment. Because if we try to gain contentment by minimizing a basement, and that does not mean a basement. It means a basement like I've learned to be abased. No, never mind. <laughs> never mind. Um, or maximizing positive experiences. Let me use another word. If, 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 if our idea of uh, receiving or achieving contentment is that I'm going to minimize negative experiences and I'm going to maximize positive experiences so that I can be content, Paul never says in this letter, I have learned the secret. I've learned the secret never to be hungry. That's not what he says. He says, I've learned the secret when I'm hungry. And I've learned the secret when I'm not. In the, writer, in, in the letter to the, to the Corinthians, he says, whether I'm alive or whether I'm dead, whether I'm beaten, whether I'm shipwrecked, whatever, I have learned this. I know how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I have learned, been a student of, I have learned to be both full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I have been a student it is not the removal of things that make us discontent, and it is not the pursuit of the things that we believe will make us content. It is learning a posture of submission to Jesus that Paul modeled everywhere that he went that leads us to full contentment. Now, this doesn't just happen. Dallas Willard says this, people who are not intent to be inwardly transformed so that obedience to Christ comes naturally will not be. What he's saying is in that sentence is we all have a desire that when we faced with some kind of issue, there is something natural in us that chooses the right thing and rejects the evil thing. And so what he's saying here is if that's what you want to happen, if you want obedient, obedience to Christ to come naturally, you are going to have to engage in some kind of effort. God is not going to pick us up by the seat of our pants, as it were, and throw us into transformed kingdom living, into holiness. Throughout scripture, there are words like pursue, eagerly desire, put on. There are things that we are called to do in submission to Jesus by the grace of the Spirit that enables us to live in this way. Paul tells us in Philippians 3 how to do this. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss. Those things that I thought would bring me contentment. I count them as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, 
I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish or trash. Much stronger word used here. In order that I may gain Christ. Does this sound like a cultural relationship with Jesus? Does this sound like a religious relationship with Jesus? Does this sound like a relationship with Jesus where he's in trouble and there is a sense of panic and he's like, okay, God, please help because I don't know what to do. No, this is a relationship that is eagerly pursued, a relationship full of joy, an active feeding relationship. That is what brings us contentment. Contentment affects the way that we view our possessions, our circumstances, our direction, and our emotions. I can't remember who said this. One of my favorite quotes about possessions says this, I've been rich and I've been poor, and rich is better. It's true, and there's a sense in which Paul is not necessarily saying the same thing, but he's saying there is a sense in which I've had plenty and I've had lack. There isn't a sense in which Paul is saying, and lack is more godly. There isn't that sense. But what he's saying is, in the midst of that, I've understood what is ultimately important. The seat of my contentment is not in my possessions. Barns, barns will be destroyed. <laughs> the things that you have set up, those of you that are old enough to live through market crashes will understand this. There is nothing safe on the face of this earth. Nothing. Even the safest investment that you think you have. Jesus tells us, moth, fire, robber can destroy those things in a moment. We need to understand if we're to desire a sense of deep contentment and still live in a world in which possessions are a real thing. And desiring possessions is not an evil thing. But it's when possessions possess you that you're in deep trouble. And part of that is death, uh, death, which is debt, you know. I mean, the two are very closely related. But when you are in debt because of your possessions, your possessions own you. You don't own them. In fact, we don't own any of what has been given to us. We are stewards of what God has given to us, of our bodies, of our families, of our money, of our homes. We have been given stewardship over those until Jesus comes to claim us for his very own. The Philippian church was an extravagantly uh, generous church. Verse 15, Paul says, No church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. Later on in the letter to the Corinthians, where he, he kind of embarrasses the Corinthians by pointing to the Philippians and saying, This poor church gave way beyond its means. This is one of my pet peeves, and I mentioned this last week, there are two scriptures here that are taken out of context all the time. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory. This is all in the context of sacrificial giving. So when, when Paul says to the Philippian church, and my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in Christ Jesus, that doesn't mean that the Philippians gave of the overflow of what they have. It means that they gave to such an extent that they needed God to provide and supply all of their needs. I challenge you to find a generous person that is not content. Contentment and generosity go together and it's not an accident. 
Someone whose seat of contentment is a living, active, faithful relationship with Jesus is able to be generous because they understand that that, that is not what brings them contentment. Contentment affects the way we view our life circumstances, where you are in your career, where you are in terms of your kids, whether you have children, whether you don't, whether your, your kids are following Jesus, whether they're not. It affects the way in which we are relationally. Our contentment affects the way in which we engage the people in our faith community, the people in our workplaces. It affects those things. It affects your influence or lack thereof. Contentment affects the way we view direction because direction can change. And Paul is the poster child of his direction being changed from one way to another. Now, our callings will never shift. Our calling is to be a son and daughter of the living God, to live in his kingdom and express some of that to the world so that others may know him. That will never change. But Paul thought, being a rabbi, it makes sense that I would go to the Jews. And so every place I go, I'm going to go to a synagogue and help these Jews realize that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Ultimately, he learns through the Jerusalem council that that is not the case. That Peter has become the apostle to the Jews and Paul has become the apostle to the Gentiles. A shift in direction and he's content enough to be able to deal with that. I tried to go to Dalmatia, but Titus wasn't there. I tried to go to Bithynia, but the Holy Spirit stopped me. I tried to go here and people tried to kill me. There is a sense of contentment that makes him just move on to the next thing. His calling remained set, but the outworking of his calling was fluid because he understood that it wasn't in the laying hold of this calling that he would be content. It was in the laying hold of Jesus that he would be content. How many of us are in that kind of position? Where there's a sense of discontentment in the sense in, in which God has called us to something and we see it really far out there. And actually, instead of moving closer to it, we feel like we're moving further away. When you read the New Testament, particularly Acts, you'll be deeply encouraged. Very few things worked out the way that any of them thought they would. For heaven's sake, Peter has a vision while he's fasting and hungry of food. That's how God invites the Gentiles into his church. Only God can do those things. We're wrapping up. Contentment does not equal lack of intensity. Content people are not lazy, Content people are not automatically type B people. You can get an Enneagram 8 that is content. You can. It's possible. It's not just nines that are content and just deeply angry all the time. 1 Corinthians 15 says, uh, verse 10 says this, By the grace of God I am what I am. Paul says it is God's grace that has enabled me to do this. It is His grace toward me was not in vain. Why? Because I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God that is within me. He is concerned that the deposit that God has placed in him, he is able to multiply by his own, we're going to use another dirty word, effort. His own sanctified effort actually means that the grace that God gives him is multiplied. Don't we want to do that? Don't we want to multiply the grace of God that has been given to us? We don't want to earn the grace of God by doing these things, but we want to multiply it. 
He's less concerned about how these things affect him personally. And he's more concerned about the spread of the gospel, about his friend's well-being, and about the state of the church. When you read Philippians, Paul, you are chained. You are about to go to trial. And this letter is all about how you love the Philippians, how you want them to remain firm, how Epaphroditus has been a gift to you, how you were concerned that he would die, and how the church is doing. You're telling these two women to agree You're telling people that the most important and precious thing they can focus on is Jesus. You don't seem to be concerned about yourself at all. That's what a content individual looks like. We often have the opposite. State of our church, the state of the people around us, the state even of our world comes secondary to our personal pain and sacrifice. And finally, Contentment affects our emotional state. I love these words that are peppered throughout Philippians. Joy, anxiety, love, longing, yearning, straining, affection, frustration. All of these words are there. Why? Because emotions are not good or bad. They are. It's when they are connected to a content individual or a discontent individual that they drive that individual or that they are used to be able to kind of pour out my emotions to God so that I can receive healing from God. Stoics say this is the way that you deal with emotions. You make your heart a desert so nothing can grow there. Hedonists try to plant through the seeds of materialism and consumerism in that desert and wonder why nothing grows. And Jesus comes by His grace and says this desert will be a garden. And the fruit that is sown in here will be for my glory. Christ changes the very nature of our souls. He changes the desert into a flourishing forest. The absence of emotion is not godly. It's not. Read these letters. Paul gets upset. Paul gets annoyed. Paul is excited. In some, in some letters, there's, there's a sense in which we can taste a little bit of his depression. It's like, I've been here for so long, I don't know what to do. The opposite is also equally damaging. This pursuit of happy. If I'm not happy, this cannot be the will of God. This cannot be good. This cannot be right. This cannot be healthy. But emotions are a thermometer of the thermostat of our faith. Emotions are a thermometer of the thermostat of our faith. Our faith sets the temperature. Our emotions tell people what the temperature is. So we try and adjust our emotions. So we go and we say, why am I so angry? Don't be angry. Why am I so sad? Don't be sad. We go and we realize, man, my faith adjustment is what needs to be adjusted. When I adjust that, and I pursue and find contentment in Jesus, and suddenly the temperature of my emotions becomes a little bearable. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is the weightlifters, UFC fighters, football players, right? Tattoos. Because what we're saying is that because I'm a Christian, I can do whatever I want. Wrong. That is absolutely not What that is saying. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul is talking about this. 
Whether my life is good or bad, whether my circumstances are good or bad, my circumstances do not affect my ability to do what God has called me to do. And God gives me and infuses me with the strength to be able to do not what I want, not to score a touchdown or to lift a heavy weight. My God will give me the strength to do what He has called me to do for His glory and for His joy. How can Paul say, indeed I have all? He's in prison awaiting an uncertain future. How can he have all? Because Christ is in him, the hope of glory. He has all. He has learned contentment. The gospel, Badger can come up. The gospel is ultimate contentment. Stoics say that I will achieve contentment and I will deal with the discontent in, in terms of how I manage my possessions and my life circumstances and, and my direction in life and my emotional state. And, and this is how I'm going to deal with it. Through a deliberate act of my will, I will deny myself and therefore reach higher levels of spirituality. And the hedonist says that denying myself is abusive. And denying myself is wrong because I was designed to be happy. So the way in which I will reach contentment is to pursue those things that I believe will make me happy. And the gospel says that by submitting to Jesus' finished work of grace, it's only then that denying myself has meaning and purpose. Stoics say that when things don't work, try harder. If things don't work, work longer. Hedonists say that if something isn't working, it can't be important. Just give up. If something is not working the way you think it should be working, if this relationship is too difficult, if this job is too difficult, if this walk of faith is too difficult to work, just give up. Stoic says, try harder in my own strength. The hedonist says, give up. The gospel says, when things don't work, lean deeper into Jesus the author and perfecter of your faith who promised you that which he started, he will bring to completion. The Stoic says that I'm going to make sense of this divine human identity by denying my humanity. Any kind of pursuit of passion, any kind of joy that I receive through this body is wrong, so I'm going to push it away. The hedonist says that the way I'm going to make sense of this, this, this divine human identity is by reveling in everything that I think makes me human. Every pleasure that a human being can revel in, that's how I make sense of this divine humanity. But the gospel makes sense of it by Jesus the divine becoming human. By Jesus the divine living in a way that we could not live, dying the death that we deserve to die so that we could experience grace and mercy through the cross. We've been rescued from our selfishness. We've been rescued from the attack of the enemy. And this is what it means to be truly, truly human. Am I content in my lack? Am I content in my plenty? Am I content in my sleeplessness? Am I content when I'm rested? Am I content in my pain? Am I content in my anxiety? Am I content in my ecstasy and joy? Am I content in my confusion? Am I content in my clarity? 
I am content through the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice, the fellowship of the Spirit, and the extravagant love of the Father. I am content. Let's pray. Father, I know that even as we minister here, there are so many of us struggling with the realities, the deep, deep difficulties of life, where we feel chained on one side to our circumstances, and we feel chained even to our emotional state. My God, I want to pray in the name of Jesus uh, that if there is any sense of condemnation that comes from the enemy now in the name of Jesus, I want to speak victory of Christ. And I want to pray the conviction of the Holy Spirit that comes with a hand of grace and help. I want to pray for those that are in the pit that you would set their feet on the rock of Christ Jesus. I want to pray for those of us that have tried really, really hard to be content and don't understand why it's not working, that we would lean deeper into you, Jesus. I want to pray for those of us that, that have given up this idea of how can something so ethereal bring me deep contentment and have pursued the pleasures of this world. God, I want to pray that you would kindly draw them to yourself. I want to pray that we would be a people that live in the reality of Christ's sacrifice understand the fellowship of the Spirit and have a tangible understanding of the extravagant, sacrificial love of the Father. Amen.